Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Um, I spent a few days in the clear skies of Denver, so if, I, um, if I'm trying to clear my throat a little bit, I really don't think that I'm sick. It's because of the shock of being back in the smoke. Well, we are back in the book of Romans. It's been, I think, three weeks since we were here. Wes read all of Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14, Lord willing. And uh, let me just remind you of where we've been briefly. So far in our studies through the book of Romans, um, we've followed the teaching of the Apostle Paul as he has painstakingly laid the foundation of the gospel, the Christian message of salvation from the wrath of God against sin by receiving the righteousness of God as a free gift through faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as summarized by the reformers, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that apart from anything that we or any other creature have or ever will do. It's apart, it's apart from us, outside of us. But so far, Paul hasn't described what saving faith in Jesus looks like. It has been apart from us, outside of us. It's been about what God has done in Christ to secure the salvation of his people. Paul hasn't issued any commands or given any practical instructions up to this point. Or to put it in theological terms, Paul spends the first five chapters in the book of Romans laying out the doctrine of justification and now beginning in, ver in chapter 6, he's going to begin to address the doctrine of sanctification. Justification has to do with our legal standing before God, how sinners like us can be declared righteous by God, and sanctification has to do with um, practical holiness in our lives, how we actually grow in practical righteousness as Christ followers. And so that's what Paul begins to do as chapter 6 opens, but as um, Wes pointed out in the reading, chapter 6 begins with a question. And it's a, que a question that's provoked by the gospel. So that's point number one in your, in your outline. Notice it once again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Why would people say that? Because that's what people were saying. This was a uh, critique, a criticism of Paul's preaching, especially by the, the Jews, frankly. But they were caricaturing Paul's message in this way, that Paul's message, Paul's gospel was that we should 
continue in sin that grace may abound. And so Paul is going to address that. Um, but this, this criticism is based on a kernel of truth, like a, a lot of lies are, a lot of lies, false teaching are not just out of thin air. Um, they have a kernel of truth behind them. So I want to refresh your memory about why Paul was accused of preaching that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Wes already had us back up to chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And that's definitely part of it. But notice back in chapter 3, in verse 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul wrote, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then down in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And you could imagine a self-righteous Jew in Paul's day responding to those verses by saying, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or look in chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Or chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No wonder, no wonder unbelievers would pervert this kind of message into a message of let us sin that grace may abound. And there is a lesson in that, by the way. We know that we're preaching the same gospel that Paul preached when people begin to say that about us. Really, it's, it's okay for people to say about us that our gospel um, basically allows for continuation in sin that grace may abound. Because the message of the gospel is very challenging in that way. It's, it's, it's against human understanding. It's against mere human common sense, which would hold that good people go to heaven, righteous people, go to heaven, godly people go to heaven, but uh, ungodly, sinful people go to hell. That's, that's certainly not the message of the gospel. It's not the whole story. And when we set before ourselves and others the truth that God justifies the ungodly, that he saves us, he justifies us, declares us righteous, apart from anything that we do, in spite of what we do, then that invites objections like what Paul reached, that um, Paul faced. And so that's the question 
provoked by the gospel that begins Romans chapter 6. And now Paul's going to go on and answer that objection. So number two in your outline is a gospel reality dramatized by baptism. A gospel reality dramatized by baptism. So in the beginning of verse 2, Paul just gives a really succinct uh, answer to his rhetorical questions in verse 1. He says, by no means. May it never be. God forbid. Then he elaborates on it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So this now is Paul applying the doctrine of justif uh, justification by faith. Remember, justification occurs outside of us, but it is through faith. Our faith, which is a gift from God. But faith is what we do. We believe the gospel. We trust in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is suggesting here in verse 2 is that there is more to the story. In other words, there's something that happens within the believer that goes along with justification. There's something that occurs within us by the powerful grace of God. And what he calls this thing that happens to us is that we have died to sin. When you believe in Jesus with true, genuine, saving faith, such that God justifies you, he declares you righteous, you also simultaneously die. Not physically, but spiritually and really. And uh, this is all based on our union with Christ. We're going to get into that more, but this is because of the death that Christ has died for us. Um, our substitute, Jesus Christ, has died for sin. And then in Christ, as believers, we have died to sin. And this is the gospel reality, death to sin, that Paul is setting before us. And he goes on to describe this conversion of our um, passing from unbelief, not being saved, to faith and being saved, this, this conversion. Paul describes that conversion as a baptism. So notice verses three and four. We have died to sin, Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, that passage has been the subject of countless controversies 
in church history, and I'm not going to be able to uh, go into it in excruciating detail, but um, suffice it to say for now that there have been folks in church history and still are today who read what Paul says about um, baptism here, and they say that baptism itself saves. Or to put it another way, that without baptism, you can't be saved. And just addressing that first um, falsehood first, the last falsehood last first, ah, last falsehood first. Remember the thief on the cross who was never baptized, but he had faith in Jesus that was manifested through his confession. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, even though the thief on the cross was never baptized. And uh, regarding that first falsehood that baptism itself saves you, well, if that's true, why did Paul just spend five chapters establishing that we're saved by faith alone apart from our works? That would be a um, really obvious contradiction if after all of that, then Paul tells us that water baptism, the ritual of baptism, the work of baptism is what saves us. And just so that you're clear about that, look back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice he doesn't say to everyone who is baptized. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, even the thief on the cross who was never baptized, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith which excludes works, including baptism. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we've already seen Romans chapter th uh, 3 and verses 20 and 28. So it's very obvious that there's no place in our becoming saved there's no place in our justification for any work, none whatsoever, including the work of baptism. So that's not what Paul is trying to do in verses 3 and 4. He's not saying that water baptism unites us to Christ. He's actually referring to baptism in verse Three, as spiritual baptism. He, he's using baptism as an analogy, as a metaphor for our coming to faith in Christ to begin with. And it's really similar to what he does over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. 
where he wrote, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now listen to verse 13. For in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, there's no water. It's a physically dry baptism. But it's a powerful baptism because it's baptism in the Spirit and by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And it's the same idea in Romans chapter 6. It is spiritual baptism that immerses us into union with Jesus Christ. This conversion, this baptism, unites us with Christ. And so it's really a parallel to faith. We go from being unbelieving to being believing. We go from being unsaved to being saved. And that process, that transition, that change is a baptism because it's radical. It's immersive. It's total. To be sure, water baptism is a picture of this spiritual reality but it doesn't produce the spiritual reality. And by the way, just a little plug um, of all the things that baptism represents. It does represent a cleansing and it does represent the new birth, but it also represents burial in verse four. And there's no other way that water can picture a burial unless the person being baptized is literally buried in water. And that's why Christians, not all Christians, of course, but Christians from the very beginning of Christianity have baptized believers by immersion in water because that's what baptism pictures, burial with Christ, union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's why it can't be true that true Christians would continue in sin, that grace may abound because we have died to sin and that by virtue of our baptism into Christ and therefore our sharing in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that, bring, um, that brings us to our next point. You have to help me out here, Josh. There we go. The key, union with Christ. Union with Christ. And I've alluded to this already. But in verses 5 through 8, notice Paul's emphasis on our union with Christ. I'll just read through it and... Uh, emphasize those words. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you hear that? Over and over again. Death with him. We've died with him. We've also been raised with Christ. This is the language of union with Christ. This is not a little detail. Union with Christ is actually central to the gospel. In fact, John Murray, the Scottish-born pastor and theologian, he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary before he passed away, John Murray said, union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Think about it. It's actually union with Christ that's the basis of our justification that uh, Paul spent five chapters elaborating. Because we're united together with Christ, then Christ legally, before God, is able to take the blame, pay the debt for our sin. And because of our union with Christ, we are able legally, by God's grace, to get the credit for Christ's righteousness. So our union with Christ is the basis of our justification. But here in Romans chapter 6, Paul is now moving on to show us that our union with Christ is also the basis of our sanctification. Remember, our sanctification is our growth in grace. It's our progressive uh, growing in righteousness and practical holiness. It, and, and it's not like this, by the way. We all know that by our experience. The Bible says that. It's not just a straight line. We, we know that there's dips and valleys and struggles and falls and then getting back up again. But if you can fit a straight line through all of those peaks and valleys and ups and downs, it is heavenward. It's, it's upward. It's Christward. That's our sanctification. But again, it's, it's based on our union with Christ. And this is what Jesus taught, isn't it? In John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus begins chapter 15 in, in John by saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he goes on to say, I am the vine and you are the branches. And then listen to verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. Abide means to, to live, to, to dwell, to remain. M maintain this vital union with Christ, the vine. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's easy to see, isn't it? You break a branch away from a tree and it doesn't take long for that branch apart from the sap flowing throughout the tree and ultimately into the branch itself, doesn't take long for a branch broken off from a tree to wither up and die. And that's the same thing with us. We don't have spiritual life in us in and of ourselves. Our spiritual life is completely dependent on Jesus and actually flows if you will, from Jesus. We only live and we only grow as believers in and through Jesus Christ. That's why he goes on to say, uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Basically, they prove to be unbelievers. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples in contrast to those who were described in verse 6, by the way. So Christ calls us to abide in him. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So another way of illustrating this union between Christ and believers. In Romans chapter 6, this union is described in terms of baptism, in terms of our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So this is the key to answering Paul's question. A believer is someone who is united together with Christ. And such a person in vital, living, spiritual, powerful union with Jesus Christ, such a person cannot go on living in sin. What's the result of that union with Christ? That's what we see next, point number four. Freedom from slavery to sin. So here we're going to overlap a little bit. Um, let's look back in verses six and seven. I read down through verse eight. Verses six and seven. We know that our old self, that's our old sinful nature, that's the same spiritual nature that we were born with. We, we were born into this world with a sinful nature. In fact, frankly, we were conceived in our mother's womb with a sinful nature. That's our old self. And Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So now Paul 
is using two analogies here, two metaphors to describe our spiritual experience. He's talking about slavery. And he's also talking about our death to sin in Christ. And putting the two metaphors together, when we died with Christ, then our old selves died and we therefore died in terms of our enslavement to sin. Now that should raise uh, a flag of attention, a yellow flag for you in your mind. What do you mean no longer enslaved to sin? Ah, this is how the Bible describes our natural spiritual state. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins, to put it one way, or to put it another way, we are born slaves to sin. That means that sin was our master. We could never do anything but sin. And this is what Jesus taught. John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's why they practice sin. Because they're a slave. What else are they going to do? And Paul says in Romans 6 here, verses 6 and 7, that we're no longer enslaved to sin because our old sinful nature has died. But that doesn't mean that we never sin. That's going to happen in glory. We, we, we don't go from being enslaved to sin to being completely free from sin instantaneously. That's not what happens. It's, it's a progression. We go from being enslaved to sin to being freed from bondage to sin. That's this Christian life until death when we're finally free from sin absolutely. Free from the presence of sin. Free from the pollution of sin. But in this life, between our conversion, our spiritual baptism, and death, that's the Christian life, in this period of time, we're free from bondage to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We're no longer under its dominating authority and power. But sin is still with us. Sin is still in us. There's a battle that's going on within, between our new nature and sin that remains. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. That's what Paul ends up saying in Romans chapter 7. So for a sneak peek, look with me in Romans chapter 7. And notice verses 15 and 17. Remember when uh, Paul originally wrote the book of Romans, like all the other books in the Bible, there were not chapter divisions. There were not verse divisions. Uh, the book of Romans was a letter meant to be read in one sitting. But 
We're not looking at the whole book of Romans in one sitting. We're just looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. But what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, we could take in the wrong way if we forget what else Paul writes. So in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and 17, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, and sometimes neither do I, and sometimes neither do you. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but listen to these words, but sin that dwells, present tense. This is not just the way Paul used to be. This is the way Paul continued to be. Even as a believer, even as someone who had been set free from bondage to sin, Paul says that sin dwells within me. And it's the same thing with you. Same thing with me. Praise God, by God's powerful grace, we have been released, set free from bondage to sin. Now, our master is no longer sin. Our master is the Lord Christ Jesus. But sin has not been eradicated within us. Sin still dwells within us. And that's why, that's why there's this war going on. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the two are opposed to each other so that we do not do the things that we wish. And let me just say that one evidence that you are a true believer and that you have been set free from your former enslavement to sin, is that there is finally a war going on. I can think back in my former life when there just wasn't a war. There might have been an occasional protest from my guilty conscience, but there was no war. I was a slave to sin. And another evidence that you're actually a genuine believer and you have been set free from sin is that you find in your heart this tension, just like the Apostle Paul mentions, but you hate your sin like Paul hated his sin. And you love the law of God like Paul loved the law of God. Your desire is to please God, to obey God, to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That was not your desire before conversion. In fact, what we desire is to obey Christ more faithfully. What we desire is that we wouldn't sin like we do which grieves God and makes us feel terrible, but we're so glad, aren't we, that God is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we confess our sins. But I just want to be clear that in Romans chapter 6, Paul is not teaching any form of Christian perfectionism. So don't think to yourself that because you struggle with sin, that must mean that you're not a believer because you've not been set free from sin. Well, you have been because you do struggle with your sin. Paul is talking about uh, enslavement. We're no longer dominated by sin's controlling power. We now have the freedom and ability to follow Christ as our Lord. Moving on to verse 8. We're still talking about the result, freedom from slavery to sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, and that really could be translated now since we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So there's union with Christ, not just in his death, but also in his resurrected and glorified life. We're, we're united together with the living Christ. And Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 in these words, I have been crucified with Christ. There's his union with Christ in his death. But then Paul goes on in Galatians 2.20 to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's his union with the resurrected living Christ. There's the branch abiding in the vine. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. That's what we're talking about. Then in verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. By the way, pause. Remember that Jesus never actually sinned himself. But God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So Jesus died as if he was a sinner. And not just any ordinary sinner, but the worst most vile, most evil, wicked sinner the world had ever seen because he took upon himself the sins of all of his people from the whole world. But that's the sense, the sense in which Christ died to sin. And then death no longer has dominion over Christ because Christ was raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. He was raised from the dead by the glory of God, by the power of God. 
So here's the thing. Here's why verses 9 and 10 fit into Paul's argument. Remember, what's he trying to address? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, just as Christ has died to sin once for all, so we as believers have died to sin once for all in him. Continuing in sin would imply that we have not died to sin once for all, which would also imply that Jesus did not die to sin once for all. It's all part of the same argument. It's, it's the, it's, they're all links in the same chain. Death no longer has dominion over him. Therefore, death no longer has dominion over us because of him. That leads us to number five, our plan of action. Our plan of action. Verses 11 through 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you something. Do you realize Verse 11 is in the, the mood of an imperative. It's, it's a command. So you also must do something. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Do you know how many imperatives, how many commands have come before this in Romans? Any guesses? Ten? Five? Two? Zero. This is the first command from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And you say, why did he take five chapters to get, well, five and a half, to get to the first command? Because Paul is building a skyscraper. It's the skyscraper of the gospel and living out the gospel, the Christian life. But if you're going to build a skyscraper up, you need to go deep first. And that skyscraper needs to have a deep, solid foundation. And that's what Paul has been laying. And that is a very good lesson for us, by the way. Because when I see church signs and I hear different teachers and I hear different Christians say certain things, I hear a lot of impatience for doctrine. And I hear a lot of an attitude that says, just get to the do's and the don'ts. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to live. I don't want to hear all that doctrine. Your Bible would be a very short if God gave you your way. But what's so bad about that kind of thinking is it's a Christless Christianity. It's do's and don'ts, practical application, how-tos without the foundation of the gospel itself. And do you know what that produces? It produces either super discouraged people who are constantly condemned or it produces Pharisees 
neither of which you should want to be. And so in real biblical Christianity, there's lots of applications and the rest of the book of Romans are going to be filled with a lot of them, but it's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's all built on his death and his resurrection and our union with him through faith. That's what Christian application is based on. And so this first step, if you will, in, in our plan of action is our thinking. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think of yourself, not as you used to be, but as you are now in Christ. Think of yourself in terms of your new identity in Christ. How can I think of doing this evil thing? Because of who I am in Christ. That's what Paul says. And then also, number two, don't let sin be your master. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And that's interesting because we were already told that the basis of our freedom from bondage to sin is the once for all death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But Paul says, that's true, but you still have a role to play. Don't let sin be your master. Just as there's, we have a role to play in our sanctification, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We have the responsibility to work out our salvation. We have the responsibility to don't let sin be your master. Don't give it the advantage. Be aware of sin's tactics, and especially in your own life. Be aware of your weak points. Don't give opportunity for the flesh. Paul says. And then, number three, use your body for righteousness and not sin. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin begins in the heart, but then it works itself out through our bodies. We saw that in Romans chapter 3, by the way. Listen to all these allusions to body parts as Paul describes our total depravity and sin. Romans 3, beginning in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks through our throat, our tongues, our lips. So we say blasphemies. We lie. We hurt people. 
We, we tear down instead of building up. We curse and swear, use filthy language. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Then verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. So the idea there is that they go places, they're active in order to murder. And in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So it's interesting how Paul strings together all of these references from uh, the Old Testament that involve body parts. And it's just a reality that we um, express our sinful nature through our bodies. And so if we're believers, if we have been baptized into Christ's death, if we have been freed from bondage to sin, then we should now, by the grace and power of God, use our bodies not like we used to, but now in a way that glorifies the Lord. We should think of our um, bodies as vessels of honor and sanctification to glorify our holy God. We're going to stop there. I'll go on to point number six next time. But um, I've tried to encourage any of you who might have an overly tender conscience, but let me also challenge those of you who profess faith in Christ. You think that you're a Christian, but your life doesn't show any fruit. You, you say that Jesus is Lord, but in your life, you're Lord. Your sin is Lord. And really, what you really are is just a slave to sin. And the message of the gospel is not do better. The message of the gospel is stop doing that. The message of the gospel is go to the cross. Look through the eyes of faith on that Savior, the Son of God, who died upon the cross to absorb the guilt that you deserve for your sin, but also to die to the ongoing enslaving power of sin in your life. Go to that Christ, go to that cross and confess your sin and embrace him by faith today.